Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Where the Wild Things Are. Where the Wild Things Are was written by Maurice Sendak and was published in 1963. And the film adaptation, which was directed by Spike Jones, came out in 2009. And I should have said it was written and illustrated by yes. Mike Sendak. Don't forget that Don't part. Don't forget that part. <laughs> so important. Yes. And you might be saying, what are you doing a picture book for? What is there to discuss? I what be- is there to talk about? I believe, I have not fact-checked this, though. <laughs> I believe this is the adaptation based on the shortest work <laughs> we've ever covered on the podcast. Absolutely. Unless we ever do an adaptation of a business card <laughs> or, like, maybe a... Honestly, a travel brochure you might be longer. You can't call that a book, though. <laughs> I mean, as long as it's an adaptation, right? <laughs> when we say books, and then yeah, when yeah. we say movie adaptations, well, we've done plays. and we do series. We've done yeah. plays, True, so. true. We bend the rules. Um, but actually, the reason why we decided to do a picture book, one, we have wanted to do this for a while. Yeah, it has been on our short list. I think we just wanted to try it. And two, um, we actually were invited to a destination wedding that it was... Uh, going to be international. So we were trying to plan around our travel and make sure we still had podcasts coming out around um, the time when they were supposed to come out, but we would still be able to go on this trip. Then uh, the wedding ended up being canceled. So we actually had to adjust our travel plans and um, we were able to exchange our ticket to go somewhere else. So we're just like going somewhere else now. (laughs) It was very strange because... We had taken time off of work and we're going to be traveling with your sister and her fiance Mm -hmm. who also took time off of work. So we're like, okay, we have these airline credits and the time frame. (laughs) And now it's just like, where do you want to go? Yeah. And that's a very weird, usually you're inspired to go somewhere. And yeah. this time it was just like, I don't know. <laughs> so we're still taking the trip. It's not the wedding. No, no. But um, we'll still be gone. So we wanted to do something a little bit uh, quick that we could be able to read very quickly and put out an episode so that we wouldn't miss our schedule for our yeah. beloved listeners. Are we not saying where we're going? Or are we? Oh, we're going to Mexico. We're going to Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. It almost is like a, It's not a secret. Okay. We're going to Merida, Mexico. Yes. Which is great because we've been practicing Spanish for a couple years now. Yes. And we will surprisingly be thrown into the fire of having to use it a lot. I so. know. I'm sure I'll be too terrified to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited that we have this opportunity to, th- to do this. And um, another thing is, you know, I've worked in libraries for a really long time and, you know, I got my library degree and I was a children's librarian for a really long time. So picture books are super important to me and I love them a lot. I'm actually not a librarian anymore. I quit my job a few months ago. You're a free agent. (laughs) Which I haven't mentioned on the podcast because it just hasn't come up. But yeah, I'm looking to maybe change directions in my career. But, you know, I'll always be a librarian, right? Yeah. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about this as a picture book, Mm -hmm. both its kind of uh, historical significance and how it holds up today and because you have way more experience with like other picture books as a genre. Yeah. As opposed to me where I'm like... Yep, this is, I like this, I think. (laughs) I mean, I think the first thing we have to mention with this book, right, is that it was 
published in 1963. Which is way older than I thought it was. It's so old. And, you know, you're talking about the picture book industry, which honestly is not that much older than this, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there have been picture books of some kind out there for a long time. But I think for a while, it was strange to make things specifically for children, right? Yeah, I mean... Beyond, like, school material. Yeah, we watched a great short documentary, which was also directed by Spike Jones, called Tell Them What You Want, A Portrait of Maurice Sendak. And mm-hmm. it's just conversations with him. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's free on Tubi. Highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember Maurice talking about, like, the picture books he had growing up. And they were just yeah. kind of, like, almost instructional books for telling children how to behave. Yes, or learning how to read and the ABCs. Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah, and but then you have this emerging industry of publishing, right? And picture book publishing, books for kids. And you have these illustrators, and you have these stories. And, you know, I think Maurice Sendak revolutionized children's literature because, you know, you have a book that is so imaginative and very centered on the child's perspective. Yeah. And it does it in like very sparse words. Like it's very simple phrasing. And then the the pictures show a lot, right? And also, you know, Marie Sendak wasn't afraid to be imaginative and inventive with the format of the illustrations. So I really, really do feel like this was a book that changed a lot for children's books and for illustration at the time. And I mean, it won the Caldecott Medal, which is, you know, an award that libraries give out every year to like the best example of illustration in a children's book. It's yeah. just for illustration. And it's it's a very prestigious award and for it to win. And honestly, you know, even in the documentary, Marie Sendak talked about how librarians were kind of responsible for getting this book kind of the attention that it deserved because it was sort of um, censured and at sometimes in some places banned. Yeah, there was kind of a backlash to it when it first came out there was kind of a famous psychologist or psychiatrist who denounced the book and said keep it away from your kids mm-hmm. and there was a lot of hubbub hub- what's that <laughs> expression i don't know hubbub there's, <laughs> a lot, there's a lot of hubbub <laughs> and so for it took a couple of years for it to kind of overcome that mm-hmm. where kids just kept checking it out of the library and librarians, like you said, were like, I mean, we'll get more, you know, because kids are really connecting with this. And I think they really promoted it. They read it at story times. Of course, it won the Caldecott Medal. And that, you know, was it for this book. It really became what it's known as today as one of the classics of children's literature. I mean, I know my brother, when he was a kid, was obsessed with the book. And especially my dad had uh, the audiobook. Oh, really? Of some sort. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know what, there's hardly dialogue or writing to Mm -hmm. it so i don't actually know what the audiobook if they added stuff or if there was music or songs or sounds but apparently my brother would just be would obsessively listen to it so the endurance of this book and this story over time is just crazy Mm -hmm. it's also worth mentioning marie sendak as just this really interesting person we mentioned watching the documentary about his life and like he's such a character and of course this is you know this documentary is at at the end of his life he's in his 80s but you know he was born to a jewish polish family you know they were very poor living in new york city he mentions a lot that some of his relatives and close family members actually were killed in the holocaust because this was around that time and 
it was clear that he had a really traumatic childhood in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether because his parents were just not equipped to be parents or because of poverty and just the circumstances of growing up at that time. But, like, you can tell that he's poured a lot of his childhood and a lot of his psychology into these books. It's really fascinating to watch him speak in that documentary about, mm-hmm. I mean, he on one hand says my parents were really terrible parents yeah. and I kind of hated them growing up, but he had really caring and loving siblings, like older siblings that really took him under their wing. He drew and did creative projects with his older brother. I mean, that was almost like idyllic in that way, his siblings. And he kind of probably because he hasn't gone to therapy. He doesn't know what keeps drawing him back to childhood and like why he keeps doing these children's books. But it's just kind of like the only thing, the only way he can process maybe like these stories or these ideas. And it's just really fascinating to watch him speak on these topics. Right. And he's got such a dry sense of humor. He is (laughs) so funny. He is so darkly comedic at points that he's just wonderful to listen to. So tell them what you want. A portion of Marie Sendak, I would highly recommend watching it. Yeah, it's like 40 minutes. It's 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 very short. Very worthwhile to watch. It's also worth mentioning that he's a gay man, right? Or he was a gay man. He's passed away. Um, But his whole life, he was basically mostly closeted. And a lot of that was because he wrote children's books, right? And we think now about how crazy the right wing and conservatives can be about like drag queen story yeah, times, right? Yeah. The mixing of the LGBTQ community and children. And at the time, it was super risky for him, right? And also for growing up when he did, it was just so, I think, really, really hard for him. But yeah, such a fascinating guy. Yeah, I really loved just getting to know more about him. And I, I've read quotes by him in the past, something along the lines of someone asked why he wrote children's books. And he's like, I don't know. I write books and they tell me they're for children. So that's what we market them as. (laughs) But what I love about this book is that it's not afraid to be a little scary. Yes. Right. Which, you know, reminds me of another one of our favorite authors, Neil Gaiman. I I was just going to say this makes me think of Coraline. Yes. And Neil Gaiman saying like, yeah, I wrote this and I didn't know if it was for kids or not because it was really creepy. Mm -hmm. But he kind of tested it out reading to his what? nieces or something i can't remember now well the publisher wrote read it to her that's that's right her daughter yeah Yeah. and that was kind of their testing ground (laughs) to see if kids would like it or be too scared and i don't know i think a lot of the really enduring kids stories tend to push the boundaries in that regard yeah and kind of be more honest about like you know kids are scared a lot of the times you know maybe for real reasons maybe for kind of fantasy reasons but reflecting that in a story might really connect with kids if it's done right Mm -hmm. so let's get into it let's talk about where the wild things are we are introduced in the book and the movie to max our main character who is uh creating mischief and chaos wherever he goes i love the really jarring cut in the film at the very beginning of him chasing the dog yes which of course is like Straight from the book, like mm-hmm. the second page, him chasing the dog with a fork in, in his full wolf suit. <laughs> yes. And screaming and it's chaotic. And then it just kind of freeze frames on him saying where the wild things are. And then the film, this is obviously because this is a very, very short picture book, is expanding on this story greatly. 
And first by showing us more of his uh, life at home with his mom. Yeah, he has an older sister. And we can see in the movie that he's making this fort outside in the snow. He's having a good time. He really wants his sister to come look at it, come play with him. But she's older, right? She's not interested. She's very much ignoring him. And we see this kind of push and pull between them where he clearly loves her and likes her and wants her attention, but doesn't quite know how to bridge the gap because there's this age difference. Yeah, she's just kind of on the phone, not wanting to really acknowledge him. At some point, her friends show up and (laughs) Max gets his snowballs ready (laughs) and he plans a surprise attack on them. And I really I love this scene so much because it's such a great depiction and so true to childhood how things can go from fun to terrible in like no time. I know. You know, they're they're he's throwing snowballs at her friends and they're kind of laughing and throwing them back. It's kind of a mini battle and Max runs into his fort and slides in and one of the kids you see him running and you're you're in the snow fort with Max and you just see this kid take a flying leap and suddenly just everything caves in. Mm-hmm. And you feel that claustrophobic fear hearing Max kind of in the snow. And the kid gets up laughing and Max, you know, struggles out and you can just tell he's stunned. Mm -hmm. He's kind of scared. He's really sad that like his fort just got destroyed. He ends up crying. You know, he's still a kid, you know, even though he's trying to play with these older kind of preteens, teenagers. And it's just this moment where you can tell the older kids are kind of like embarrassed or... They feel bad, right? Yeah. But they don't know what to do, and they just kind of ignore it and leave. And poor Max is just left alone in his misery. And his sister kind of, like, looks at him and sees what happened, but then sort of turns away, Doesn't right? do anything and, yeah. and abandons him. And, uh, just like, like I said, going from that, the very highs of this joyous, fun moment to just suddenly, like, devastation. Mm-hmm. And so Max, being so angry and upset, he goes up to his sister's room He kind of throws off all of his wet clothing from playing in the snow, his boots, his jacket, shaking off all the snow. He takes this, what looks like a Valentine's Day thing that he clearly made for his sister, like popsicle sticks. He tears it up. Just kind of this outburst, right? His mom comes home and he ends up showing her what he had done because he feels really bad about it. Yeah, and they clean it up and you can tell, I mean, this is such a clear indication and, and a good representation of that childhood emotion, right? Because it's so intense, but it doesn't last, right? Yeah. And that's the thing about these childhood emotions. It's just like so quick, but it's so intense. We have another scene where he's in school and the teacher is talking about how the sun <laughs> is dying and will one day just... uh like explode it'll go supernova and envelop all surrounding planets before collapsing in on itself and you can see max is just like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) i love this because we're watching it and we're like on one hand we're like what teacher would tell these children this thing but also i 100 (laughs) percent believe a teacher who maybe like wants to show off his knowledge to the kids about like oh this cool science stuff one day this is going to happen and just telling these children oh, oh my god horrifying information about the universe <laughs> uh and i i just like getting this brief glimpse of his life in school and yeah and we also find out in the movie that his parents are i think divorced right now we don't see his dad at all 
and his mom is dating someone new, played by Mark Ruffalo. Which I, he's in the movie for like two seconds. I'm like, is that Mark Ruffalo? You don't even get it. I didn't think it was because like when you do see him again, I was like, I don't know if that's him and that's it. Yeah. You hardly ever see his <laughs> face at all. I thought that was so ridiculous. They cast Mark Ruffalo for this. Uh, Max wants to, he's, he's kind of jealous. His mom is spending time with this guy and he wants to play and is trying to, you know, fight for her attention. And when she's not giving it, he puts his wolf suit on and he gets into kind of this pouty mode, right? He's crossing his arm. He's kind of being belligerent. Mm-hmm. He's purposely just dragging the chair across the kitchen floor and stands I, up on the table. And I love the mom at one point sees kind of his attitude just simmering. And she's like, don't. Like, <laughs> you know. That she knows what's coming. That this is something that's happened many times in the past. Yeah. And she's like, please don't do this. I have a friend over. But of course, Max stands up on the table (laughs) and starts yelling at his mom. Yeah. Uh, Ends up having this huge tantrum and biting her. And this is different from the book because we have Max being kind of wild in the book, like chasing the dog. And his mother called him Wild Thing. And then he said... I'll eat you up. But in the movie, he bites his mom and then his mom says you're out of control. Yeah, she kind of she was kind of carrying him to his room. And when he bites her, she kind of throws him off of her. So it's I don't want to say it's like violent, but it's kind of this jarring moment. Right. And yeah. You see Max realizing what he did, like the seriousness of it. Mark Ruffalo is like, he can't do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> and Max takes off out of the house and running down the street. The mom tries catching up with him, but he loses her. Yeah. In the movie, he's, you know, running out of the house. He's leaving. He's running away. In the book, he is sent upstairs to his room without his supper, and he's just pouting in his room. And this is where, in the book, he imagines that his room becomes a forest, and then there's a boat that kind of floats by on this river in his room. And what I love about this, these few pages is that we've had on the left side of the spread, when you open a picture book, there's like the left side page and the right. It's been words on the left and the pictures on the right. And as the story goes, the picture on the right starts out kind of in a smaller square and it gets bigger. And then when we get to the part where he's imagining that his room becomes this forest, the picture on the right actually starts to encroach into the left side so that it's slowly moving more and pushing the words right and then when he finally gets to this land where the wild things are we have instead of the words on one side and the picture on the other we have the picture kind of on the top over both pages the left and the right so it's sort of a full spread with like a sliver on the bottom that has the words it really is incredibly impressive that you know, when children's books were so kind of in their infancy at this point in time, he was already so experimental with format. Yes. And how he was arranging type and imagery, where oftentimes that's something that, you know, it would be like, you know, you'd think it'd be years of just uh, words on one side, pictures on the other, or maybe pictures always on top, words below, just kind of a format, right? But I mean, already he's thinking about like, how do I use the page and the framing and kind of capturing this imagination and it starting off confined and real, really in a small tight square and then blowing up as his imagination grows. Right. I yeah. mean, just 
brilliant. Like you said, I mean, this is 1963 and we're all and we're seeing this kind of innovation with the format of the picture book, yeah. right? Like really playing with it, which is really fun and cool. And I like this how it goes in the in the book and I think it's interesting that the movie has him running away instead. I like this, I mean, adding a little bit of drama to the narrative of the story, but also, I mean, even though by the end of the movie, it you can pretty strongly assume that this was all in his head, no yeah. matter what. The movie, at least at the beginning, leaves the possibility that maybe this is actually happening, right? Yeah. Kind of him maybe finding a boat and actually sailing off. And mm-hmm. it, it leaves that room of possibility, right? Whereas the book is like, no, it's his imagination. The whole room is literally transforming into a jungle. Yes. I just want to quote when he's in the boat on this voyage, right? It says, and he sailed off through night and day and in and out of weeks and almost over a year to where the wild things are. (laughs) And I just, the phrasing of it is so whimsical, I think. And it's over different pages, right? So you kind of, you know, and he sailed off through night and day, turn the page, and in and out of weeks and almost over a year, turn the page to where the wild things are. I mean, the fact that, you know, Maurice Sendak is obviously a fantastic illustrator, but he's also very thoughtful and creative and playful with his word choice too. And like the way he structures a sentence. Yeah. And I almost imagine that phrase, um, and almost over a year to something a kid would say. Yes. Yeah. You know, like not quite knowing how to say a year, (laughs) but they're like, and almost over a year. You know, (laughs) it's true. It's not quite a year. It's almost over a year. Yeah. But in the movie, we have him going through all these storms, right? And he yeah. sees this land up ahead, and he he finally is able to land his boat, but it's it's very rocky. He's climbing up this mountain. He sees some lights in the distance. It, it feels like treacherous. Like it yeah. feels like they're like, especially when his boat comes towards shore. I know. And there's just big waves crashing, and he kind of has to like jump out and. It feels intense, right? It feels forward and maybe dangerous. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he kind of climbs up this rock face towards where it looks like there's a fire. And this is where he encounters the wild things. Which they're never called the wild things in the movie. Yeah, or or is the term wild things used ever? I don't think in the movie. In the book it is. Yeah, yeah, because even the mom calls him a wild thing. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think that that term, it maybe probably would have come across like as like- Like two on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> You're a wild thing. Max is kind of peeping out through the trees and it's nighttime and he sees these these monstrous creatures and one of them seems to be careening headfirst into these little like- <laughs> Giant nests, I would describe them as. Yeah, they're kind of like um, woven twig basket kind of looking things, which we see one in Max's room, like a small one. Mm, I didn't notice that. On his desk. Yeah, along with like some little models and stuff. So I like tying that into his real life. So he sees a monster, something kind of like silhouetted. There's kind of fires everywhere, which is interesting, kind of illuminating the scene because it's nighttime. I really find this interesting, though, that the film... Our introduction to these characters, to the wild things, is they're kind of having a crisis. Yeah. There's a situation going on. He doesn't show up and they're all just like, we're the wild things and we've (laughs) just been sitting around not doing anything waiting for you to show up. It's like they're in a conflict right now. (laughs) And essentially Carol, who is kind of the, the main character of the wild things, is upset that another character named KW has left. So there's some drama going on. Yeah. There's there's some real... Uh, Max is getting all the tea right now. 
<laughs> KW's left. Carol's upset and he's deciding like that the houses need to move or they need to go or I don't like them anymore. And he's just literally destroying shit. Not right? just his house. Everybody else's Everyone house else's. too. <laughs> Max, all Max sees is that this is an uninhibited rampage and yeah. he wants in on it, right? <laughs> yeah. And he just jumps and he runs through one and they're like, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> he just starts, I love how he kind of jumps through the wall of one and then yeah. just takes a stick and starts hitting it. And Carol is like, hey, I like the way you break stuff. And he's like, okay, you take that house, I'll take this one. And they kind of like split up, right? But then Max gets surrounded by the other wild things and they start, they're pissed at him because they're like, Hey, these are these are our houses and you're breaking them. <laughs> Who the hell are you? Like, where did you come from? Yes, and they threaten to eat him. Yeah. And it's very dramatic until Max tells them, be still, and tells them that he has magic powers. Yes. And they should uh, respect him and fear him. This is mirrored in the book when Max first meets the wild things. He tames them with a unblinking stare yes. that uh, freaks them out, right? <laughs> so it's very similar. But in this version, in the film, he's telling them he has powers that can uh, tear them apart. And I love the conversations. It's like you said with the writing. The phrasing is how a child would maybe say it. Yes. And a lot of the dialogue with the wild things is like how a child would put it. Yes. And this is also going back to a part in the film that I liked where Max kind of makes up this story to his mom. You know, the mom just is is upset with work and she's like, tell me a story, Max. And he tells her about these vampires and these buildings, these living buildings. Is that right? And one of the vampires tries biting the biggest building and his teeth break. And then all the other vampires are like, you can't be one of us anymore. And, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's kind of funny and silly and but with a level of um sadness to it. But on top of that, I can't help but think. If you were to actually render and visualize this story, it'd be a little weird and disturbing, right? Yeah. A like, yeah. Like where the wild things are, Exactly. Right? <laughs> like watching a vampire break his teeth off trying to bite a wall would be like, ugh. And there's moments in this movie where you're like, ugh, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah, threatening to eat him. And then he tells this whole story about how once there were these Vikings that tried to mess with him and he made their brains explode. And his ice fortress. Yes, like clearly, the snow fort. clearly rewriting history as to what happened <laughs> with his snow fort and the snowball fight, right? Yes. <laughs> and I like the dialogue too, because they're like, but you're so small to have magic powers. And he says, well, that's what makes me dangerous because my powers slip through the cracks. <laughs> but what if they seal up those cracks? He's like, then I have a recracker. And, and what, about, what if they seal up those cracks? I have a double recracker and nothing is stronger than that. And I love one of them in the background. You just hear him like, wow, he's a double recracker. <laughs> Kid logic for Kid, sure. Yes, absolutely. But I love it. It's so good. Yeah. The lines in the book for this was they called him the most wild thing of all and made him king of all wild things. <laughs> and in the film, they decide to make him because he says he was a king where he came from. So they're like, you can be our king. And they reach into a pile of bones and pull out a crown and scepter. And I love this. because like, what's that? Yeah. And he's like, oh, that was our last king. It's fine, though. We didn't eat him. <laughs> but it's, You're fine. Yeah. But I love that the movie is, I mean, the book to a really young audience could be kind of like, not scary, but I mean, like monsters kind of dancing around threatening to eat a child, like a little, you know, creepy. And the movie is kind of 
you know, leaning into that, right? Creating an atmosphere that is a little unsettling. Yeah, there's danger. Yeah. This begins uh, the wild rumpus. The wild rumpus. Which I don't know if quite is a word that we use anymore, but I think we can all understand the idea of a rumpus, right? (laughs) Yeah. I love in the picture book, you just turn the page because he's like, let the wild rumpus begin. And instead of it being like the divided format with the words on the bottom and the pictures spreading across the top, it's just a full spread of just pictures. So left side, right side, it's all connected. It's one big picture. And then you turn the page. It's another full spread. And it's just them kind of cavorting. They're in the trees. They're running around. You turn the page. It's another full spread. Three full spreads of just them having this wild rumpus. I think, yeah, Hitting its climax, this book, like with just fully going into the visuals, dominating the entire spread, no words at all, just them running around. Like, I I love this format. It's like the book is like taking a breath, right? Starting off small, expanding completely in the middle, and then kind of contracting yes. at the end. Yes, for sure. And you know what? You know how I would read this, Ian? Yeah, tell me, tell me. <laughs> so... Reading this, which I've done story times a ton as a children's librarian, this this is a perfect story time book. Is because it? Okay. the thing with story time books, and people don't understand this, Ian, <laughs> is that you cannot have too many words. Mm. Children do not have a long attention span. And you have to involve them somehow. Mm-hmm. You need to capture their interest. So this is perfect, right? You can engage them with the pictures. You can engage them with the words and the story. And then you get to the wild rumpus. And I imagine this as a story time where the kids all arrive in like a costume or something. Mm, yeah. Or maybe like you pass out some like shakers or some instruments or drums or things to them at this time. And then you have a three spread wild rumpus mm. and we all have a, we do the wild rumpus together. That's so have you done this or no. is this just your idea? I this love that idea. idea. Yeah. Oh, babe, that's so good. <laughs> I'm sure other people have done this for story time, but then we all sit down and we finish the story. That's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> we all like march around the room yeah. with our instruments and go a little crazy, you know? That's great. And yeah. I mean, like I imagine too that, it's fun to ask a kid, like, what's going on in this spread? Like, what's happening? Like, even if it's, like, one-on-one, like, with you and your kid, right? Yeah, You know, getting yeah. them to understand that the visuals are telling a story on their own, right? And I want to say, too, like, as an illustrator myself, I really love Marie Sendak's style in this book. The, the kind of cross-hatching yes. look. It, it is kind of, um, it's not overly vibrant, which I think is kind of mirrored in the film. The film has a very almost muddied palette like all the wild things are kind of very neutral colors and but the book is like that in a lot of ways too and I mean maybe it has to do with the printing of the time as well you think of children's books like Dr. Seuss though and them just being like primary bold colors for sure whereas where the wild things are is very muted by comparison but still like really thoughtful really well done and in that documentary, I'm unfamiliar with Murray Sendak's other books, but you saw his other books. You saw just a lot of illustrations he'd done. I kind of assumed looking at where the wild things are, I'm like, this is probably his style, you know? Yeah. Um, his style is extremely varied. And that's so impressive as an illustrator myself, like to see that he can kind of put on different hats, try different things. Sometimes it's just all line work. Sometimes it's cross hatching. He does really beautiful, fully rendered uh, realistic characters and people too, and his. I imagine I think he does his own coloring too. Mm-hmm. Just really impressive work. 
Yeah, and let's talk about the design of the wild things in the movie because <laughs> yeah. they are so spot on. So they were made <laughs> by the Jim Henson Company. Oh my God, seriously? Yeah. Wow. So this is kind of interesting. So they developed these costumes. And it's funny, there was a, Spike Jones worked with another illustrator whose name eludes me. I watched an interview with him. And it's funny because he was kind of drawing the wild things also in his style and kind of trying to create inspiration but what they ended up making looks like they came straight from the book anyhow. I know. I mean, like the chicken feet. Yes. The stripes, the tails. The scales. Yes. The the combination. That's what I love about the wild things is they're, they're, they're this weird combination of animals that it feels like a kid would imagine, right? Yeah. And then we see them in real life and they really are so tactile and real feeling. And when Max interacts with them. You know, it feels so real. And I really admire their dedication in this film to make these in real life. Originally, the heads had animatronics in them Mm. that would be puppeted by either someone outside of the suits or, you know, inside. So the mouths and eyes and everything would move. But when the stunt doubles or the uh, whoever was wearing the costume put them on, the head was way too heavy. Really? They couldn't do anything in them. Because they're just like, the, the all the electronics in the head, it's too much. So it kind of was decided almost at the last minute, we got to strip out the insides of these. Wow. And then they decided, we'll digitally animate the faces. Which, honestly, despite being kind of a last minute decision. It's seamless. It's, oh, it's phenomenal. It yeah. is one of the best blendings of practical and uh, CGI effects I think I've ever seen. It's really well done. And I know just based on watching like YouTube videos and VFX artists react, they're constantly talking about how important reference is. So they'll talk about like, even if you have a fully CGI character or monster or something in a scene, it's nice to have a double of it in that environment to film it. And so you can kind of be like, okay, the scales kind of look this color in this lighting or like this appears this way yeah. to actually look. And so they actually had like the faces and the fur and the hair. So I'm sure that really helped when it came to the CGI because they knew by reference how everything was supposed to look. Yeah. And Max is really interacting with these physical objects, yeah. right? You know, there's so many scenes where he's running into them. They're <laughs> carrying him like it's very physical, right? And so we feel Like, we can touch the wild things, right? We know what they feel like. And it feels dangerous when they're surrounding him, when they're kind of creepy. It it really, I think, elevates this movie so much to have that physical, these physical characters that just, and and like, they work so well because they're that great combination of, they feel kind of like stuffed animals. Like, they're (laughs) realistic, but in a way that is bending reality, if that makes sense. Like, you know that they wouldn't really exist as creatures but physically they feel fully formed it's so hard to explain (laughs) they have this wild rumpus in the movie and then end up sleeping in this huge pile and they kind of express to max before this and during this scene that like things have been kind of hard between them like they've had these interpersonal struggles kw kind of comes back to join them at this time and talks about how she went away for a while and she's coming back to trying to try to see if things are better. But like they see Max as someone who's going to fix everything for them. Yeah. And he kind of wants to, I think, you know, he tells them my powers can 
block out loneliness, right? And sadness. And you see that there is kind of a fracture in their group and complicated feelings and relationships. But in this moment when they're all sleeping in this big pile, I love it because it kind of connects with your inner child. Yeah. You're like, I would love this because there's like a space in the middle that Max can kind of crawl around in. It's like a sleepover, right? It is, but with big fluffy monsters. (laughs) It's wonderful. The next day, uh, Carol shows Max his kingdom, right? The rest of the world where the wild things live. They go, they're exploring this desert, they're exploring this cave. We see Carol show Max this thing that he's made. And at first I was like, wait, what is this? It's a little model village or little town that he's constructed out of his imagination. I I love this moment. He shows him kind of what his his ideal area community community would be like but it's really more of an idea than a physical plan it's it's a place where only good things happen and everyone's together and i i kind of want and i think this touches on a really interesting theme in the film specifically and that is at least from a kind of a child point of view creation versus destruction yes because we see this hinted at i think early on where Max is, you know, feels slighted by his sister, right? And so he stomps into her room and he takes this thing that he made for her, right? And then he destroys it. He tears it apart. Yeah. Out, out of anger. And when Well, something that he made was destroyed, right? Yeah, it's some, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's something that he created that he is then destroying. And when we're first introduced to Carol in the film, he's destroying the their little village, their their homes and everything. And, you know, despite being this kind of character of destruction who likes almost violence, right? To see that Carol built this really detailed, intricate model, like that clearly took time and dedication and focus. To see that he's capable of that is, like, really revealing and interesting. Well, for sure. And this is just one of the many hints that Carol is a very obvious embodiment of Max's character. Yeah. Right? Because we see Carol with this out-of-control personality. And we'll get Mm -hmm. more to that later. But him, just like you said, being capable of its destruction, but also this beautiful creation. And being capable of being kind and generous, but also vicious and angry. Yeah. And unsure of himself and having a lot of doubts. And uh, But... As he's showing Max this, he cut Max says, you know, we could do this. We could make this. We could make a real community, like, where everything good happens, right? And Carol's like, are you, really? Like, okay. And they kind of plan it, and they go back to the other wild things. They're kind of, like, <laughs> pitching this idea. And I love these moments because Max is talking about, like, it'll have an ice cream parlor and a t- detective agency. My favorite and- part is it's going to be a swimming pool with a trampoline at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's so great. And and there's kind of like varying opinions about it. Some people are like, I don't know about this. Other people are like jazzed about it. So it's kind of interesting. But then they start building and creating this thing, right? And it's just a larger version of those kind of woven twig uh, homes, right? It's like this huge ball. And it's really kind of weird and cool. And and there's an underground part that has tunnels. Really awesome. 
We should talk, though, about the personalities and the characters of the wild things, because in the book, they don't get names or personalities. They're all just wild things. And we see kind of roughly the same amount of wild things, although the book does have more wild things than the movie I does. did notice, and I, I yeah, I noticed a couple that weren't in the film, although the one looks pretty similar to Carol. Yeah. Except with like maybe a slightly larger nose. So mm-hmm. I kind of was like, I get why they cut him. Yeah. I get, I get, I get why you were yeah. cut. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't make From the, the team. the main cast. Yeah. But we have, so we have Carol who is sort of the main wild thing. And like we said, you know, is the most volatile, I think, out of all of them. We have KW who Carol seems to have a relationship, whether it's romantic or whether it's just a friendship dynamic. And yeah. she's kind of this, she's a little bit aloof, right? Mm-hmm. She's a little bit separate. And I think there's a lot of Max's sister in her. I was going to say, I feel like she embodies both Max's sister and his mom. Yeah. Because on one hand, she's kind of distant. She has these other friends she keeps talking about. Yes, Bob are, and Terry. Bob and Terry. <laughs> and she keeps kind of leaving for her other friends, right? But also she has this kind of protective, yes. instinctive nature about her that wants to, like, make sure Max is okay and, like, protect him from danger, which yeah, feels very... Yeah, and he, he bonds with her. Yeah, which feels very motherly, right? So I feel like she kind of embodies that, like, direct familial relationship, right? Yeah. We have Judith. She's kind of volatile, kind mm-hmm. of um, acidic in personality. She's a little bit of a downer, yeah, as she says. A bit of a downer. Yeah. <laughs> there is a really good moment with her, though, that I like, where she kind of starts poking at Max, saying like, "Oh, what are you and Carol talking about? You play favorites, don't you? Like, I can tell that you you like Carol more than us." Mm. And they get in this like shouting match, right, where they keep laughing sarcastically at each other. <laughs> and then the last time Max does it aggressively, she seems like hurt. And she goes, you can't do that to us. You can't get mad at us. We're allowed to get mad. That's our job. It's your job to be, like, cool about it. (laughs) And suddenly I love this because Max is in this leadership position. He's the parent. He's the parent of the group. Yeah. And he has this kind of pouty child yelling, being like, I'm allowed to be mean and shitty. But but you can't do it back. You're not allowed to. Yes. (laughs) I I love this kind of subversion of that. Yes. And then we have Ira, who is romantically involved with Judith. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, he doesn't do much. No, no. He's kind <laughs> he of... He makes holes. <laughs> That's right. I make the holes. I don't know if you noticed. Well, and Carol tells Max that he... As king, he owns the trees, but not the holes in the trees. <laughs> the holes in the trees belong to Ira. Yes. There's uh, uh, Douglas. Douglas, who is Carol's kind of like best friend, right-hand man. He's very reliable, very sturdy. Uh, we have Alexander who is the goat boy of the group. (laughs) Seems like the smallest and the youngest and no one listens to him. Yeah, and this is like, I love Alexander. He's voiced by uh, Paul Dano. Oh, really? Yes, voiced by him. Actually, the guy who I mentioned earlier who did those kind of illustrations of the wild things for himself and for the movie ended up doing the performance in the suit. Wow. Of Alexander. (laughs) Due to a weird circumstance where the person who was doing it wasn't good for the role, and Spike Jones was like, why don't you do it? He was like, I mean, I guess. I've literally never done anything for a movie, but... Oh, my God. <laughs> but he's he's really good in the physicality of the role. For sure. There's also uh, the bull. The bull. Who, I, I don't know if he has a name beyond yeah, just the bull. But he just does not speak. No. He just kind of looks ominously from the distance. Yes. Uh, so... KW at this point is like, listen, you should meet 
my friends, Bob and Terry. Yeah, I've been talking great. about them so much. And so they, they go on this journey, going through the desert. They're on this kind of beach area. And she throw this, throws some rocks at these birds. <laughs> and she's like, here are Bob and Terry. They love when I throw rocks at them. <laughs> and at first I'm like, is she just holding these birds captive and are thinking they dead? <laughs> that, yeah, that they're her friends? But the birds seem to be talking and responding. This actually kind of reminded me of like something in Labyrinth or something. Yeah. With the birds. Yeah. And I could al- <laughs> also I could picture how the puppeteer had their hands inside each bird. Yeah. Talking like the way the suit was designed. So it was like very <laughs> clever in that regard. Apparently Spike Jones does the voice of the birds, oh which is just God. cawing and squeaking, which was so funny. But of course, they're just chirping, right? Yeah. And Max can't understand them, but apparently KW can. She brings them back to the fort to meet everybody else, and everybody else can understand them. But Carol can't, which we find out later. Yeah, and Carol's upset that KW is bringing her new friends around. And this was talked about earlier how the fort, you know, in in their um, montage of saying all the different things the fort could do, one of them was like, and if anyone comes in who we don't want, it'll cut their brains out. (laughs) And so in this moment, Carol's standing there with the birds and, or I'm sorry, KW is standing there with the birds and Carol is like, hey, Max, why isn't it working? It's like, what? The part, the, the thing that's supposed to cut brains out of people we don't want. <laughs> oh. And everyone's like, ugh. You're, you're killing the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> you're killing the vibe, Yeah, Carol. you're bringing everything down. And KW's upset, and Carol's just mad and kind of storms off. And I love this moment, too, because when Max follows him, Carol kind of, he's upset. He's upset at KW, but also he thinks that everyone's mad at him. And there's clearly this, like, self-doubt and regret going on too. Yeah. This insecurity. Yeah. And Max is trying to, wants to make everything right. And so he's like, listen, I I have an idea. It'll fix everything. And he goes to, gets all the wild things together. He's like, we're going to have a dirt clod fight. (laughs) Classic. Classic, right? Almost like the snowball fight Mm. from earlier. But he's like, okay, we're going to divide up into teams. There's the good guys and the bad guys. You're a bad guy. You're a bad guy. You're a bad guy. I'm a good guy, obviously. And then these people are also good guys. So it ends up with them throwing dirt clods at each other. And as the snowball fight was, Ian, it starts out so promising, right? Everyone's having a good time. It's fine. And then people get hurt. Yeah. They, in, in, in this instance, Max is on the aggressor's side. He has, is it Douglas, I think? Yeah. He has Douglas purposely target Alexander. Yeah. And hit him like a few different times. And Alexander's really upset. He kind of, it, it's funny because he's kind of like, I mean, he sounds like a child, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I was hurt. You can't, it's not fair. You can't hit me when I'm hurt. And he's like, I'm done. And he storms off. And you can tell there's rift is forming. And then KW runs up and she ends up stepping on Carol's head. <laughs> and I love this argument because... Once again, it's like a child, right? Where KW is like, I mean, come on, Douglas stepped on your head too. And he's like, yeah, but that was on accident. And he didn't step on the face part of my head like (laughs) you did. (laughs) Yeah, it turns into this whole thing and KW actually leaves. And then Carol is like, it's fine. Max has magic powers. He'll make everything right again. He'll bring KW back. Like everything will be fine. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we get a, a scene between Max and Alexander, the one that they targeted with dirt clods. And he notices that Alexander actually has like a cut on the back of his head mm-hmm. and like asks, was that because of the the dirt clods? And he's like, yeah. 
And Max apologizes to him and yeah. just says, like, we didn't mean to hurt you. And he kind of acknowledges, and this has been said before, and it's kind of been a joke where Alexander will be, like, maybe voicing his concerns about something and no one acknowledges <laughs> him. And he goes, can anyone hear me speaking? <laughs> and it's like, it's funny. But at this moment, Max is like, you don't think people hear you, do you? Yeah. And you realize that, you know, Alexander definitely embodies this part of Max that feels like he has no voice, that nobody pays attention to him, Mm -hmm. that's really shy, right? Yeah. And I I just love this moment a lot. Yeah. And then Alexander says, you're not a king. You're just regular. Yeah. I know that. And Max kind of admits this, and he's like, don't let Carol find out. <laughs> and then Very Max, ominously. And Max is like, everything's fine. And then he tells Carol that he's going to make a secret room just for the king <laughs> that is small, and nobody else can get in there except the king. And Carol is really mad about this. Yeah, he's like, I didn't envision it this way. <laughs> and he punches a hole in the wall. And there's one scene, too, where Max is, like, watching Carol like kind of restlessly sleeping and clawing at the ground and just kind of bringing up the fact that Carol is a wild thing. He's a dangerous monster. Yeah. Maybe if he finds out that Max lied about his powers or being a king, he might eat him still. Yeah, they're trying to calm Carol down. And and Douglas at one point is like, he's not a king. Like he's just a boy. And there's this sad scene where Max... They're like, show us your powers, Max. And, and he can't, right? He has nothing to show them. And He does this like goofy <laughs> robot dance that he did for his mom at the start of the film, which was yeah, really funny. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't impress them. But uh, Carol and Douglas get into this huge argument and Carol rips off Douglas's arm. <laughs> this part <laughs> is so like kind of, oh, my God. It's horrifying. I mean, it is. Only sand comes out. And also Douglas is just like, come on, that was my favorite arm. Yeah. But it's disturbing, right? But they're saying, Carol, you're out of control. Yeah. Which is exactly what Max's mom said to him. Yeah. And and in fact, Max says that directly to Carol. Max is the one who says that. And I just, I love this idea that, you know, you're reflecting once again, you know, Max physically bit and hurt his own mom. Yeah. And just kind of showing that, People, and maybe even especially kids, can cause physical harm to the people that they love, right? Yeah. Not even just emotional uh, or verbal abuse, but, like, physical harm. And after this, Carol goes on kind of a rampage and starts chasing Max through the woods. Yeah, he says, I'm going to eat you up, and Max is is genuinely afraid. He runs into KW, and KW's like, I'll hide you. Get inside my mouth. (laughs) And he does. He's like, sure, let's do it. This part also is one of the funniest visual gags where he goes into her stomach, which is kind of like fur lined. It's like kind of slimy, but kind. Yeah. I think they hit a good balance of like it being kind of gross, but not overly gross. But he's in there and he looks over and there's just a raccoon in there, like just chilling. Yeah. Like it's eating something like it does, it's not being digested. It's just hanging out. <laughs> Oh, my God. But we hear and we see Carol come up to KW and they're talking and KW is trying to defend Max and being like, you know, you need to stop. What's wrong with you? All this stuff. And then there's this part, too, where Max is just talking to KW from inside her stomach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and he's like, he he doesn't mean to. He's just afraid. Yeah. And he loves you. You're his family. Yeah. Obviously speaking from his own experiences, his own mistakes. And there's kind of a moment where K 
KW is being sad and the opening starts closing and he's like, can I get out of here? And you're like, not sure if she's <laughs> hearing him. Yeah. But then I love how she just reaches in her own mouth and like pulls him out. <laughs> Once again, I mean, the way the Jim Henson company did like all of these effects is phenomenal. It's very weird. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but Max at this point says, I wish you guys had a mom. And you can tell that he cannot be the mom anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what yeah. he's been having to do with these kids. Like, these kids, right? These mm-hmm. wild kids. And I really think this is an interesting perspective on him seeing himself in the wild things. Yes. But also seeing his mom, right? Yeah. And maybe seeing what she has to deal with with him. It, it, it's a really smart way of approaching the problem at the start of the film. How he, through interacting with the wild things not only understands the position that his mom was in by having to kind of be in it himself, but also understanding his own issues. Yes. And the way he behaves and like what it's like to have to deal with that. And maybe understanding where some of that anger and hurt and backlash comes from. Yeah. But it's all very nuanced, right? Like it's not no. very overt it with any of its messages. It doesn't hit you over the head. I think the line, I wish you guys had a mom, is the most obvious uh, that this movie gets. Yeah, really? yeah. Really? But then he's like, I'm going home. And I just want to read how the book handles this because all the stuff we've talked about is just in the movie. In the book, they go on their wild rumpus, right? We have the three spreads of the rumpus. And then we go to the next page and... Now stop, Max said, and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then all around from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being king of where the wild things are. Yeah. And I think so the messages are different from like the movie and the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I do think we see a mirroring in some ways, right? Because in the book, Max is like, okay, now we stop our wild rumpus. And he sends them to bed without supper, right? Like he was sent to bed yes, without supper. Yeah. You know? And then he's like, ugh, I don't want to do this anymore. You <laughs> yeah. know, he's got his wild energy out almost. Yeah. And yeah. now he's like, okay, now I just want to be home. I want to be with my family. The book almost takes the approach of like, kids kind of just almost have to get this energy out. Like they yeah. almost need this release, right? Of just kind of getting to like play and run. And even if they're acting out, right, like they'll come back down in a pretty short amount of time (laughs) and be ready to kind of like come back to dinner or just come back to the parents or family, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really, really like this. And he, Max in the movie, also decides that he wants to go home now. And so he's getting ready to leave. We see him trying to find Carol because Carol has run off. He goes to where the model is where Carol has built this little model village and sees that Carol has destroyed it. Once again, tying into that creation and destruction theme, which is, it's so sad to see that. And, you know, you're thinking once again of Max and his tantrums and kind of uh, outrage, right? And Max, you see him doing something on the floor with some twigs, but then he leaves, he finds Carol talking to Douglas Douglas now has a branch stuck in his arm socket that's just kind of vaguely hand-shaped and it's just sticking straight out of his body. Oh my God. It's very darkly funny. But he talks to Carol and they 
are, you know, Max is kind of obviously confessing to not being a king. And he says, Kara says, well, what are you? And he says, just Max. And it, it's not really resolved because then Carol says, well, that's not very much, is it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Max Max leaves. He he goes back to the, the shore. We see Carol return to his hideout mm-hmm. where his model was. And he sees on the floor in twigs was he, Max made a heart with a C in it. Yeah, for Carol. For Carol. And I, I find that really interesting, kind of like, I mean, it could be obviously read as like, I love you, Carol, but also you're deserving of love or, mm-hmm. you know, you should be more willing to love yourself, like that kind of thing, you know, just generally. And Carol obviously immediately regrets his decision and goes running back to where Max is leaving from. Yeah, Max is saying goodbye to all the wild things. And in the movie, we have KW say to him, please don't go. I'll eat you up. I love you so. Yeah. Whereas in in the book we have all the wild things saying to max oh please don't go we'll eat you up we love you so (laughs) yeah it's very sad and emotional in the film i know it's very it's very uh earnest it is and max is sailing away just as carol gets to the shore and i love this bit of it's kind of bittersweet like he doesn't get to hug carol goodbye they don't get like any kind of like personal one-on-one moment right but just as max is sailing away carol who's clearly upset begins to howl yes like they have multiple times throughout the film and they all kind of join in Mm -hmm. max included in this howl goodbye and it's so it's really sad it's really sad (laughs) i love in the book they say like don't go we'll eat you up we love you so and max said no Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, they're like, no, it's it's not it's not very mixed emotions in the book. No, they're all it's like, not. don't go. I love this combination and this correlation between eating and love. Yeah, and that ties back into the kind of hurting the people that you love yes. in a way, like because you love them. Mm-hmm. And just that like biting his mom, you know, even saying like to a baby, like, oh, I just want to eat you up, right? That just being something that we say to babies. Yeah, tiny children. I've said that. (laughs) I'll admit it. (laughs) But I I just want to read this part, um, this ending of the book. The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. But Max stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye and sailed back over a year and in and out of weeks and through a day and into the night of his very own room where he found his supper waiting for him. And it was still hot. <laughs> like, what a way to end this story, right? I know, I like, know. Like, just the simple phrasing, and I love how these sentences flow into each other across pages, right? Yeah. It really, like, it makes you pause, but you're still going. And for, like, you have this page of him going back to his room, and you see him in his costume in his regular room. We see there's a little dinner, like, set on his dresser. And then you turn the page, and it's totally blank, and it says, and it was still hot. Yeah. Like, isn't that the sweetest thing, mm-hmm. right? A hot dinner. Mm. Yeah, and just focusing on that one detail. Yeah. I also find this interesting because, you know, I said at the beginning that this is definitely a dream. Or this is his imagination, right? Yeah. Because a forest grows up in his room. Yes. 
but he returns and there's dinner waiting for him. Yes. Which implies that he was gone. Or he slept. He was probably asleep, right? Yeah. But there's still that, like, implication that he was somewhere else in some kind of way, right? Uh, And in the film, he, you know, sails all the way back. Mm -hmm. By the way, we have not mentioned the score in this film. No. It's really good. Did you read who did it? Yes. Uh... (laughs) I was going to maybe do this for lightning round, but I oh, might sorry. as well just mention it right now. Um, Karen O of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Did the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was apparently, so kind of a interesting, apparently Arcade Fire was supposed to do the soundtrack. Oh, because they did the, so- the song in the trailer, Yeah, right? yeah. They had a song in the trailer, which, by the way, that trailer is a fucking banger. <laughs> I highly recommend, <laughs> even if you don't watch this film or you didn't like the film, watch the trailer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mood. It's a vibe. It's great. But there's an Arcade Fire song to the trailer. I can't remember off the top of my head which one. Uh, but yeah, Arcade Fire is going to do the score for this film. I guess they got halfway and decided, like, I don't think this is working, or maybe Spike Jones didn't think it was working, and they kind of got off the project. Spike Jones, I think at the time of this film was being made, was dating Yes, Karen he dated o. her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and probably was like, can you do me this huge favor? Can you score well, a whole film? Well, she also collaborated on another film score. Really? Or a song, at least. She collaborated, collaborated oh, on the her? Immigrant Song. Oh, from Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with Trent Reznor and Adam Oh, Frost. really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I was thinking other Spike Jones. No. There is a song. Oh, she did it, a song in her. In her. Okay, yes. I thought so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting, though. I, I don't think they dated very long. Yeah. But clearly they had a very positive working relationship yeah. because they worked together after this. Yeah. Yeah, which is good to know. <laughs> it wasn't just, like, a favor. Yeah. I heard, though, that she kind of had to, like, crank this score out rather quickly. Really? Probably because of, like, deadlines. But I mean, I think it really works. Yes, it's definitely setting a mood for sure. It feels, it does feel very like late 20 aughts. Like it makes me think of like the Juno soundtrack, this kind of like folksy singer songwriter, kind of like rough uh, style of music, right? But I I think it's very appropriate for this movie. movie. It feels kind of improvisational, kind of wild, kind of like a little disjointed Mm -hmm. in in the best way. I think it works well. Yeah, Max comes home and sees his mom and and she hugs him. And then there's this, just this scene of him at the dinner table with her and he's eating, right? Yeah. And then his mom is kind of like falling asleep at the table, but she's (laughs) like staying up with him, right? Yeah. It's very sweet. It is. I find it interesting that the sister never makes any kind of I know. Yeah. We don't even see her in that destructive dinner scene yeah even though it's implied she's in the house they were like calling for her right yeah but i also think like trying to establish any kind of relationship that was going to grow with her probably would have felt forced like i think the relationship with the mom was more important and trying to do anything more than that might have felt like trying to do too much i think so i'm okay with the decision honestly yeah it is interesting though just i just to think, note that she doesn't come back yeah i just think you kind of forget that the sister exists <laughs> by the end of the film yeah a little bit <laughs> um but that's that's both versions yeah and uh you know i want to talk just briefly here at the end just about spike jones because what an interesting director i know so he started off Music videos, right? Well, before that, he was real into skateboarding. Mm. I think he's a skateboarder. And he kind of was like 
filming skateboarders and kind of documenting them. I think he did like maybe some kind of documentary short film style stuff with them. And then he worked on a magazine called Dirt that was very influential. Then he moved on to music videos. He did tons of music videos videos throughout the 90s. Really? Beastie Boys, Kanye West, Bjork, um, just tons of names, right? Uh, Arcade Fire. And then he came into his film debut with Being John Malkovich. Yeah. Which was written by Charlie Kaufman, which, I mean, was really well received, at least by critics. And I think a lot of people in general. Very strange movie. (laughs) Um, But very, very unique. And then he partnered up with Charlie Kaufman again. He directed Adaptation. So, I mean, really making a name for himself. He's such a bizarre guy. Well, and I know that he was married to Sofia Coppola. Yes. Right? And famously or infamously, her movie Lost in Translation, the the husband character of Scarlett Johansson is supposed to be based on Spike Jonze. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, because they were divorced at this point. Oh, my God. And so she was kind of writing this story about her being kind of in this foreign country with Mm. him and he's just preoccupied with work and doesn't have time for her, right? That's so fascinating. (laughs) Well, it was uh, Francis Ford Coppola who brought the script of being John Malkovich to Spike Jones and said, I think you might like this or be good for this. Man, Spike Jones has been all over the place (laughs) in Hollywood. But I think the interesting thing, though, is, uh, you know, he he kept doing music videos he still does a ton of music videos really? and commercials. He did a lot of commercials, too. Wow. But he still does a lot of those kinds of projects. He didn't just graduate to film and never look back, right? He still does tons of music videos. Also, he directed her. Yeah. He and, wrote and her. And wrote it. Yeah, he wrote, I mean, he wrote the screenplay for this with Dave Eggers, yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. But something about him writing her, I mean, her is such a emotional brutally honest well some people say this that's his perspective of his divorce with Sofia Coppola oh that's right he is going through a divorce at that time isn't he oh my god it all just all of Hollywood is a biography Adina every film is a biography but I mean like he can be both like really absurd and ridiculous with like jackass films and then do something like her or something weird and crazy like where the wild things are and uh, I've read that Maurice Sendak purposefully picked Spike Jones to direct this movie. Yeah. I think he was somewhat familiar with his work. And also, I think, got to meet him before giving him the rights to do the movie. But Maurice Sendak was very happy with the way this movie turned out. And I think he was on the same... He and Spike Jones were in sync in terms of, like, I don't care if this movie pisses people off. (laughs) Like, I want to go for a vibe. And if people don't like it, that's fine. But I don't want to make something that's just, like appeasing to Disney or whatever. For sure. I want to make something challenging. And that's definitely what this movie does. Yeah. And I don't know if we can do the purpose of this podcast here and pick one of these. I think we're going to have to back out of our... (laughs) our, uh, I don't think it's possible to have enough evidence to pick something that was so groundbreaking in children's literature, but is only like a few sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then have this like movie that has these amazing practical and CGI wild things, right? And this very interesting and psychological story about childhood. Like, they're just, they're similar, but I don't feel like you can compare them. Well, and where the, like, you know, the children's book is obviously made for children. The movie feels like it's more like it's made for adults and is a reflection of childhood, which is, I think, what Spike Jones wanted to do. 
and what the studio ended up letting him do in in general. Like they didn't even really try to market it towards kids. Uh, so I mean, even in terms of like their target audience is different. So yeah, it's really hard to pick one out of them. It's really apples and oranges. But I will say, the first time I watched this movie. I wasn't sure how I felt about it, <laughs> but I think I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Yeah. This is my first time watching it. What What did you, how did you feel about it? I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting look at childhood mm-hmm. and yeah. all the, the darkness and light in childhood. Yeah. Very brutally honest about kind of loneliness. And I even just love the part about like him knowing that the sun is going to die. Yeah. And how a child like would worry about that. And it's like, yeah, there is kind of a, deep sadness about those kinds of things when you're really, really young. Okay, so we're not going to pick this time. No. <laughs> because it wouldn't be fair, I don't think, to pick one of these. No, I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, this book is so short, I don't really have anything for lightning round. Do you have anything? No, I think we got to <laughs> say all of our fun little tidbits and facts and yeah. background info. We talked about the soundtrack. We talked about Spike Jones, Marie Sendak. Marie Sendak, yeah. We, oh, I, I have one thing. Okay. Um, he has one book called like Over Yonder or something, mm-hmm. and it was actually the inspiration for Labyrinth, the movie. Oh, it's okay. about this girl and her brother who gets kidnapped by goblins, and she has to rescue him. And actually, in the credits of Labyrinth, they like thank Maurice Sendak. I don't oh. know if they paid him money for it, but like they they credit him. Funny too because that was also a movie that uh, used the Jim Henson Company to great effect. Yes, in terms of its puppetry and visual effects and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So very interesting <laughs> for sure. Well, that was your lightning round. That's that was it. it. That was your one tidbit. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed uh, getting a little bit of a peek into what. A picture book adaptation is like and how we discuss that. Maybe we'll do another one someday. Yeah. I mean, there's like a few Dr. Seuss at least (laughs) that potentially we could do. Who knows? Uh, If you would like to support the podcast and get even more content, have your suggestions become episodes and become get, get access to our discord. You can join us on Patreon at any available tier for all that stuff. You can find those links at coveredcredits.com for our Patreon, for our Twitter, for our Instagram, for our Facebook. Yeah, and it'd also be helpful to us if you could leave us a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And yeah, we just appreciate every listen. And if you have any thoughts on where the wild things are, the movie or the book, or any any other thoughts you just want to share with us, go ahead and reach out. Yes. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.